I got, got so wrapped up in my notes, I forgot you were out here. <laughs> but now that I'm here and now that I'm looking at all of you, I'm remembering uh, what it was like today to meet with you. And uh, you may not feel it from the inside because there are those moments where you feel like nothing's happened. And in some ways, nothing has happened. It's just been unfolding present moments. But yet, so m- we go through so much. But to me, and I imagine to us, you look different. There's a, there's a settling. There's a, I felt like with each person, I was getting a little bit of a blessing today. There was kind of a brightness. And, uh, and taking in each person, I was struck, as I often am, it's not the first time I've noticed this or talked about this, but I was just struck, struck by uh, the, the you that was sitting before me, the, what I call the unique expression of life, perfectly unique, not like anyone else ever. Perfect expression of life brought together by a miraculous confluence of circumstances, some born in um, circumstances where there was affection that then led to, you know how it goes, but some people... (laughs) Some people who came into being as a result of, of trauma, of difficult circumstances, but nevertheless meant to be here. How do we know that? Here you are. Through no fault of yours, you've emerged out of all the circumstances that have ever occurred of all time, and here you are. Each person, such a unique flavor, and in my mind, you know, uniquely beautiful. I was also aware of, and James really highlighted this last night, of the difference between the you that we meet, that direct, real-time experience of you, the one that you have in this moment, how different that experience of yourself in real time is than the one, than the version of you that plays through your mind. What we sometimes call the virtual version, or I think I joked the first night, the fake news. Not exactly fake. The story that plays through our mind approximates elements of our life. We think in certain ways because of the conditioning that, that, that we learned either through our, our, from our culture, our parents, our teachers, our different circumstances, shaped by 
what you might call non-personal elements, nevertheless, you emerge individually as this unique expression, but the story that plays through your mind is, uh, is, is slightly and often totally, as we've been highlighting, distorted. In some ways, the version that plays through your mind, even though it has arisen organically through all the different influences of your life, even though it's come together so innocently, it in some way describes someone who does not exist. It describes a virtual version of you. Secondhand. And what we find when we fall into what I call a case of mistaken identity, when we, when we believe that the one who we imagine ourselves to be that includes the comparisons, how high, how low, how equal to, when we believe that that is who and what we are, we suffer. And out of that suffering, the suffering of adopting a view about ourselves that is based on an idea, we suffer because that idea has no, there's no ground to it. There's no there there. It's an idea. As Sharda was saying, this morning, she was quoting one of our teachers, Anagarka Munindra, who said, a thought of your mother is not your mother. The same is true about yourself. A thought of yourself is not yourself. It is a view. It's, a, it's a, an approximation. It is a, it's a story. The Buddha called this view, this story, Sakaya Ditti. Self-view. And as a view, it is something that comes and goes. And that view comes and goes according to who you're with. I recently taught with uh, Bonnie Duran, wonderful uh, teacher from the Pacific Northwest. And she, she gave a name to to the view that I may have about myself when I'm sitting in this seat. And she described herself as the sage on the stage. (laughs) And I often will say, you know, here, the view of myself is I'm, I can easily incarnate or believe I'm the, I'm the guru. I'm the person who's, you know, and it approximates what's happening. It talks about a role and how I'm functioning. But if I take that identity, that view about myself to be the reality and miss the, just the, you could call it the suchness of just being here, quite insecure. Because I am the sage on the stage here, but then I go home. (laughs) And my daughter, she doesn't... She doesn't see me as the sage on the stage. <laughs> you know, more recently, 
just for example, it's just happened in the last few months, so it's still very fresh in my mind. I came back from leading a retreat where I was sage on the stage, <laughs> and uh, I, I came home late, and I slept in a different bedroom so I didn't wake anyone up. And I came down in the morning and was, made a little coffee. And I expect to be, you know, that everybody will come and say hello, etc. when they wake up. But my daughter comes down the stairs, doesn't say a word. I said, it's nice if you say good morning. <laughs> and she says, nobody does that anymore. <laughs> That's for old people. <laughs> so, so needless to say, any view of myself, <laughs> if I live in that Sakaya Ditti, in that view, it, it has no ground to it because it, a different view shows up. I'm old dad. I'm just whatever. So just getting, staying with Molly for a moment, my daughter Molly, what really, I, I always like to give her credit for helping me see the difference between the, the unique expression of life, our individuality, that the, each of you that, that I've been so touched by just meeting with, the difference between that and the, and the view of ourselves that flows through our mind, uh, it, it struck me, this is maybe a, one of the most poignant moments for me in my daughter's life, because there, it showed me the, the inevitability of this process and the process of falling into that case of mistaken identity. I had been marveling at her unique expression of life and how all the conditions that had to come together for her to come into being. And it was, I used to say to myself, she is just like perfect molliness. She's not like anybody I've met. She has a certain flavor, a certain, you could say, essence. We all give off a little scent in a way. And so this was about three or four years old. One day I noticed that she was, and she had, has these curly, she in this, when she was a little girl, she had these curly little locks. And I noticed her at the mirror pulling on her hair. And it turns out that she had just started this kind of nursery school where there were two little straight-haired, blonde-haired little girls, and she wanted to look like them. The beginning of the emergence of the comparing mind. And I saw that that, that formation of an identity of comparing is just part of our, you could say, psychological development. Wanting to be like somebody, wanting to be different than others, this urge in us to, to individuate or to, or to join, or these different parts of what, it, what happens when we are born into this world. But in that very instant, I saw where her mind, again, innocent, 
inevitable where her mind began to form a virtual version of herself, a comparable version of herself. Now there's not really one, there's not, in real time we can never find anything in us that's comparable. We are not comparable in real time. The one that sits here right now is just exactly the only way you can be at this moment. And any comparison is, you could say, of the past. It's of that kind of psychological formation, that, that self-view. And as a view that really can't capture the experience that we have when we come into the sense of the immediate present. Do you find any evidence, if you don't consult your memory, for any kind of insufficiency? Any less worthy? Any better than? Even equal to anybody else? Or do you just find your immediate and direct experience? What the Buddha talked about as what we discover in reality when we step beyond this little narrative that plays through our mind is we find the simple reality of the present moment. We find sights, knowing them, sounds, smells, tastes, sensation, thoughts, and that's it. No, no evidence in just the simplicity of those experiences for unworthiness. So that sense of unworthiness, that sense of comparison, the judgment that James spoke about, it is, it is not only um, just part of the flow of our consciousness, but it's a, it's a distorted perception. And when we believe that's who we are, we fall into what the Buddha called wrong view, ignorance. And what we can reclaim, what make, what's possible here, and what, what it's so obvious when I saw the, the greater sense of light flowing from you, is that we, we recover, uh, and it's not an idea, it's a felt experience of our sufficiency, our okayness, what Trungpa Rinpoche called basic goodness, just okayness. Just notice in this simple moment of sitting here when you're not thinking about where you're going or where you've been. You're just experiencing your life, whatever's happening in any of one of your senses. Just sense whether there's any problem to be solved, conflict to be resolved. Now, the version of ourselves that's playing through our mind is is a view or a story of conflict, of lack. Something's always lacking. Some problem needs to be solved. But when we look at, in real time, we can't find it. 
It's of the past. It's a memory. It's an idea. And since we are all innocently conditioned to to fall into this view about ourselves that plays through our mind, we're often wandering around believing that we are in some kind of conflict. And we're, we're in a conflict that needs resolution. Again, where is that conflict in the simple moment of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking? So if we miss this simple reality, your version of molliness, and live in your compare, if you miss this, this, you could say, ground of experience, just being yourself, so to speak, something in our nervous system becomes agitated. Because once I fall into that view of myself that is in conflict, something in my body says, oops, something's wrong. I love myself, so I want to solve the problem. And our mind, instead of just feeling in general and feeling that sense of upset, which is what we're doing here. Instead of realizing that the cure for that pain is in the pain, as Rumi put it, our mind, our attention then generates a a plan. It generates a plan to somehow figure out how to solve the conflict of my life. And when I'm caught in that plan to solve the conflict of my life, to figure it out, I create myself in that moment as someone, a somebody who has come from the past. I made it here and I'm on my way to the future when I will solve my problem when I will find relief. And we even play into it by by in some way saying, well, awareness is the key to finding relief. And it's true. But it's not, this awareness of where you are is not just a means to an end. It is the end. Because every time you step into awareness, into knowing the simple reality of what's happening, you step off of that wheel, off of the wheel of time, of going. Because that story in our mind says, I've come from the past, I'm passing through here, on my way to the future. Of course, the past, just a thought here. Future, just a thought here. They don't exist. But when my mind does that, and when your mind does that, the present, the only place where we find our molliness, 
the only place where we find home, the only place where we, we find both the beginning of our path, the path itself, and the end of our path. The only place we miss. And then our drama is what's happening. Or life of the present is what's happening while we're planning for our resolution. I, I used to share, I haven't done this in many years, but I, um, I just love the, the line from the movie with Jack Nicholson from the, I think it was from the 80s maybe, the movie called As Good As It Gets, where he goes into the therapist's office and he sees everybody you know, bound in the past in a way. And, it's, and we all, it, this happens to us, all of us. We get bound in our views. And he walks into the office and he sees the, the, the level of, of upset and he says, what if this is as good as it gets? And in some way, our practice is trying that on until we realize that this is as good as it gets. And if you get used to that, this is as good as it gets, then there is a transformation that occurs. There is an increasing sense of goodwill, of letting go, of wisdom, all the things that flow from our heart and mind that's not looking somewhere else. All the innate qualities of us can then just flower. So an essential part of our practice is to see the difference between what we are experiencing in this moment. The you that sits here. Not the idea of you, but the direct experience of yourself the difference between that and the version of you that plays in your mind. Or as James J. Audubon put it, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. So you are waking up. You look so much brighter. And, uh, I'm inspired to read the, a poem from, from the poet Hafez where he says, uh, I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. But, you look, but you're with the friend now. And I take that to be you, are, you have the companion of, of awareness, you know, a sense of aware presence. You are with the friend now and you look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. 
That's his version of put your mind in your body and your body in your mind. He goes on to say, this is the warning about how to, how to regard that, those perceptions of ourselves that play through our mind. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> Sorry. Just had to... So the, the idea is to wake up out of that. And how we do that is every moment of attention simply making the profound but very subtle but profound and simple shift from simply being carried along by the views, the comparisons, the judgments that James spoke about, the versions of ourselves that are playing through our mind, by making a shift from being lost and carried away by those versions, literally living in them, to noticing them. From relate, the shift from relating from that point of view that there's something wrong with me to relating to that. Isn't that interesting? The mind that's saying something's wrong. You don't have to get rid of it. As James described, it self-liberates when you see a view for what it is. I especially like a, a poem from the poet Rumi entitled, Tending Two Shops. He says, don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. Actually, I'm living with mice over at the teacher village. I had to chase one out of my room the other night. Anyway, that just struck me. (laughs) The only real rest comes when you're alone with God or the divine or, or just aware presence. Live in the nowhere where you came from. undefinable. I'm editorializing. Live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here, you have eyes that see from that nowhere. And you have eyes that judge distances. How high, how high, how low. You own two shops. And you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap. I would change that to try to notice the one that's a fearful trap. Always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the one where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. So that very shift from being carried along by that stream of views about yourself to noticing it, that very instant, you're free. You are then free to 
to be. You do not have to, from this vantage point, from the vantage point of being present, you don't have to go anywhere to be okay. You don't have to become someone other than what you always are already. As James, I forgot the quote last night, is this is the moment to... What was the quote? Do you remember something? This is the time to be complete or something. This is the only moment to live in the light of your true self. Beautiful. Just to put it in slightly more humorous terms, I don't know how many of you read Anthony DeMello, but a wonderful spiritual teacher. He described in one of his books on awareness, uh, watching Spanish television, and he heard this story where a father uh, knocks on his son's door in the morning and says, Jaime, wake up. And Jaime answered, I don't want to get up, Papa. His father shouted, get up, you've got to go to school. And Jaime said, I don't want to go to school. His father said, why not? Three reasons, said Jaime. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. Third, I hate school. And his father then said, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it is your duty. Second, because you're 45 years old. And third, you're the headmaster. Wake up. Wake up. You are the headmaster. Wake up. Remember that quote I shared from Thich Nhat Hanh. You, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. So even when we practice, even when we practice, even though we are fulfilling that aim to wake up, our our mind, our thinking mind, the mind of what the Buddha called bhava or becoming, still associates our freedom and our well-being with what happens next. And as one of my teachers said, freedom waits, but we're busy with something else. See if I can find... Have to give up on that one. So this is a very, this 
this overshooting the source of well-being and peace. This bhava, this toppling forward into the, the next moment. The coloring of the present as a, either a pass-through, as Eckhart Tolle says, or an obstacle, or the enemy to our sense of well-being. This is at the heart of what the Buddha saw when he sat under the Bodhi tree. He sat under the Bodhi tree and he, he saw how, how with the absence of attention, a whole array of experiences present themselves. The whole range that we have offered you over the course of this retreat. And of the whole array of experiences, they're simply the experiences of the five physical senses and the mental sense. Really six things repeating themselves over and over. But each one of the many, many, you could say mind moments, moments of experience, each one of them, regardless of the the door of perception, regardless of the sense, each experience comes with a little valence. It's either pleasant, it's unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, as Sharda spoke of this morning. This may not seem like a big deal, but this is the where and why and how the whole case of mistaken identity, the whole loss of freedom takes place. It all starts with those simple little feeling tones that accompany every experience. These feeling tones are so central to the teachings that they are considered the second foundation of mindfulness. First foundation, mindfulness of the body. Because when each one of those little feeling tones, when it's pleasant and it goes unrecognized, it's quickly followed by liking. We like when it's pleasant. Liking is quickly followed by wanting. Now, I don't know how many, whether this has happened to you on this retreat. I'm not necessarily encouraging it. But often there is someone on the retreat who you see accidentally, even though we're, we're meant to keep a kind of empty, unfocused attention. But we notice each other. And there's someone who you notice. And when you see that person in your visual field, because of your particular conditioning and each person's unique expression of conditioning, reacts or respond, is conditioned to respond or react to different people in different ways. Well, there's a person who, for you, it triggers a sense of, this is pleasant. This, what, what I'm seeing or sensing is pleasant. And I like that person. And if it goes unnoticed, that liking quickly, quickly moves into, I want this person. And within a flash of minutes, you have gone from a simple sense experience 
of seeing. That's all that really happened. But that simple sense experience moves on to liking, wanting, to, just in the general way of describing it, the fantasy world of desire and marriage, travel, (laughs) divorce. Again, nothing happened. But our mind literally entered into a lifetime. We were born into the sense of, I'm here, I am now, because I have fallen into this sense of lack. You know, wanting is often, and this is not the wholesome longing for freedom. That, that's, that's helpful. But this kind of wanting for to have or connect or this and that. It's, it's natural in us, but this kind of craving creates this kind of uh, tension. I've basically gone from just a pleasant experience to a feeling of lack. I can't be happy without this. My happiness all of a sudden becomes suspended. And it all depends on whether I work it out or not. What happens? And into, into the imagined, into my mind, go, I, I, I become this person who has got to have this relationship to be happy. You know, I've had these kinds of experiences on retreat. We call it the Vipassana romance. And it's, it's very intense. And it gives, you, it gives a chance to see the force of desire in our mind. Again, if I'm, if I'm just carried along by that, I can wander a long time in a feeling of lack. On the other hand, if I notice, if mindfulness rises up to meet that moment of desire or the fantasy. And I notice, oh, this is the fantasizing mind. This is desire. This is the tension of desire, of waiting or hoping or expecting, of, of chaining my well-being to how things turn out. This is what this is like. Once that experience meets the light of attention, when I actually feel that, I'm not saying that that feeling goes away, but I'm free. That which is noticing that experience is not bound up in the experience. Desire in that moment is desiring. It's the story of desire. And meanwhile, I'm, as Ajahn Chah, great forest master, says, I'm sitting in that in the the Dharma seat as the one who knows. Budo. Knowing that this is desire, this is fantasy, this is a Vipassana romance even. And it may fade away at that time, but it's likely to come back. Doesn't matter. Everything is equal opportunity to know Budo. To know, to 
learn and stabilize and get used to and take that seat of that natural peace and freedom of resting in that one who knows and knowing what's happening. We sometimes get so caught up in what we're noticing that we don't realize that what's noticing is untouched by what we're noticing. Untouched by, yeah, by what's noticed. Untouched by what's being noticed. In fact, when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he, he did it very much like what we're doing. And he saw how this sequence of events that occurs. And he saw that that whole process of, of getting caught in a, some kind of fantasy was just, it didn't, the person who was, was involved in that fantasy was just an idea. And it, that sense of ourselves when we're living in that dream, in that fantasy, that, that person doesn't really exist. It's empty. It's a thought. And he saw that he had, he had had those kinds of thoughts again and again and again. He had, those thoughts had driven him from one experience to another over and over again, lifetime after lifetime, of I want it, I have to have it, getting it, losing it, wanting it again, and around and around, and we do it with endless different objects. We wait, we hope, we expect. The weekend, the vacation, the person, the, the bank account, whatever it is, the objects are endless. But he saw that each time that he, that he got caught in that, each time that he got caught in that tight fist of grasping, there was a loss of freedom, a loss of space, a feeling, an increasing feeling of lack. But as soon as he was able to notice and release that tight fist of grasping, there was so much more space, so much more freedom. And he could just see that that's just, that that's a kind of delusion. And it's, it's said that when he finally just woke up to that, to Budo, to that in each of us that is, that is sometimes described as unconditioned, free, deathless, untouched by what visit. When he woke up to that and he realized after all those dramas that what he had been looking for was none other than the nature of his own mind that was always already here. As one Tibetan teacher says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant when it's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. So, I mean, continues, says nothing to do or undo. Nothing to want, every, nothing missing. Well, when the Buddha woke up to that natural freedom that we actually touch and fulfill in every moment that we're aware of what we're doing when we're doing it. We step off of the wheel of obsessing about what's next. But when he woke up, he let out a 
a song. And he described having been just carried along by this kind of delusion for over and over again. So he was so human in that. But he said, through many births into these, into these lifetimes that I go in my mind or in reality, through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house, the house of self. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again, at least, and not be noticed. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken, which is the defilements, the confusion. Your ridgepole destroyed. Ignorance. Avija. My mind gone to the unconditioned. Vija. That essential wakefulness that is already, always already. To this craving, cravings lessening or cessation, my mind has gone. So freedom waits, but our mind is toppling forward. And so what do we do? First, as we've been saying, notice. Notice the way that you create yourself as comparable. Notice it. Notice when you feel above, below, equal. Notice when you're caught in a, in a desire. And of course, the reverse of the Vipassana romance is that somebody triggers a little unpleasantness. I heard about some of this in the interviews. <laughs> Unpleasant, followed by not liking, followed by, I'm being exaggerating here, hating, strong aversion. And then that creates tension. And out of that just... Uh, a kind of release of energy comes in the form of, of what we call papancha, proliferation of thoughts. And, uh, make, and what we do, instead of just feel that sense of aversion, the very the hindrance, when it, goes, uh, when it goes unnoticed, that hindrance of aversion, when it go, goes unnoticed, it goes right into making a case for the prosecution. But when it's felt, it's recognized as being the, the weather pattern of the moment. Very unpleasant. And if it's felt, it brings us back to that ground of presence. If it's felt and we feel the pain of it, it, it gives way to a sense of, of caring, of compassion for how uncomfortable it is. But if it goes out into that case for the prosecution, it becomes the Vipassana Vendetta. And so if at whatever point in the cycle of becoming, however far along we've gotten into that lifetime of having, of needing things to be different than the way they are, we wake up and we notice, oh, this is what it's like to be, to be caught. 
And just like that moment where you realize that you've been lost in thought, that's a moment to celebrate. It's a moment of freedom. So when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and he was able to see the flow of these different experiences, the more he paid attention to what was going on in his mind, and I know this is happening for you because you look so much brighter. He began to notice whatever whatever he noticed began to be seen much more clearly. And, and each experience had the effect of brightening his attention, partly because it was cleared of, it was clearing of memory and plans and, and, and what happens when the, our mind and body comes together our, as our, our mind gets stronger, it also gets brighter and reflects our experience much more clearly. Finally, it was so bright that he, that you could say it was shining in its clarity. He said, luminous is this mind. It's brightly shining. And it really easily gets colored by the different experiences that visit. People who don't train their attention to notice um, get lost in this. So there's no cultivation of their mind. But then he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is untouched by all of these experiences that visit. This the yogi understands. Therefore, there is cultivation of the mind. So moment by moment, we unstick from this case of mistaken identity. And we just attend as carefully as we can, moment to moment, each moment, stepping out of the idea of ourselves into a direct experience. And as we pay attention, we start to have that sense of not just what we're noticing, but the awareness that notices it, shining in its clarity. This is what one teacher named Nisargadat Maharaj, I think James quoted him last night, this is what he said, True awareness is a state of pure noticing without the least attempt to do anything about the event being witnessed. Your thoughts and feelings, words and actions may also be part of the event. You notice all unconcerned in the full light of clarity and understanding. You understand precisely what is going on because it does not affect you. It may seem to be an attitude of cold aloofness, but it is not really so. Once you are in it, you will find that you love what you see. 
whatever may be its nature, this choiceless love is the touchstone of awareness. If it is not there, you are merely interested for some personal reasons. In other words, you want something to happen. So moment by moment, we cultivate, we, we return to, reclaim this choiceless love. And as the, as the Zen master Hakuin Zenji says, how sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst or a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Lost on paths of ignorance, we wander from path to path. When shall we be freed? from birth and death, becoming. O meditation, to this the highest praise. Those who meditate even once wipe away beginningless crimes. Where are all the difficulties then? The pure land itself is near. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond any doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. good stopping place. Don't move. May all beings attain steady molliness. May all beings be free. May all beings know the difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says. May all beings be liberated. So enjoy your 
simple awareness of the six sense experiences for the next 30 minutes. And we'll have sitting with some chanting during the nine o'clock sitting. So stay with it. Thank you. Thanks for your attention. Appreciate it. <laughs>